You are listening to Concrete Conversations, an informative podcast brought to you by the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. We represent the concrete masonry and segmental paving manufacturers in Australia. Our podcast will discuss technical information and case studies with some special guests from our industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. On today's Concrete Conversations, I've been out this morning and seen the manufacturing and production behind one of our favourite members who are doing some fabulous work in looking at how we can incorporate building waste product into concrete bricks. So please join me in welcoming Will Stewart from Natural Brick. Hey Liz, how are you today? Good. We've had a great morning this morning and it's been fascinating to see a little bit what you're doing with incorporating building waste with some beautiful new concrete bricks. Yeah, it's been a bit of an exciting process over the past four or five years that we've been trialing these new products and sort of exciting to see what we can sort of get out of some of the most abundant resources we have in Australia, which is building waste. Yes. Before we go into that, though, I want to just take a little bit of a step back. And if you could just talk to me a little bit about growing up and and how you came to be involved in, in this industry. Yeah. So I grew up in Richmond, Windsor, Western Sydney, spent all my schooling life there. I only went to two schools, primary school and high school. And so it was the same the whole way through. And sort of partway through high school, I started to realise that there's a big world outside of the Western mm-hmm. Sydney bubble. There was a world that can sort of consider different diversities and cultures and processes and methodologies and ways of life. So partway through my high schooling at Richmond High School, I watched this documentary, which was all about uh, what was happening over in Eastern Africa at the time with some of the child warfare and the militia groups over there. And I was just so amazed that this sort of thing happened in the world around us. And whilst mm-hmm. we were living quite privileged lives in Sydney, being able to head over there and, and see a completely different world and maybe help in some way, that's sort of what inspired me. And so I went through the last few years of my high schooling, working in the evenings and studying during the days and finished up school in 2012. And 2013, I bought a ticket to Africa and went across to Kenya and Uganda for three months and just worked with a couple of organizations that worked to, to build schools, but worked predominantly in, in Nairobi, Kenya, with yeah one of the, the largest slums in, in Eastern Africa. So we built a school over there, or we part of doing the last bits and pieces for that school, which then evolved into another project where we wanted to build a boarding school for girls that were leaving the primary education system in the slums there and able to then continue their secondary education out in sort of remote areas within Kenya. And obviously that's had a huge impact on you, but how has it changed the way that you've sort of operated in not only your work but personal life? I think I was so inspired from that first trip uh, over to Eastern Africa that as soon as I got back home, all I was thinking about was how do I earn enough money to get back there again? And I want to stay for longer and longer times. Yeah. So the next sort of four or five years of my life sort of revolved around doing a degree during the day, working overnight shifts. I used to work at an RSL club. So you start work at 7.30, finish at 4.30 in the morning and then back on the train at 8am the next morning to get back into uni. And through that whole process, as you get to the, the uni break at the end of the year, I was like, sweet, we've got six weeks. I can get back to Kenya and be, be amongst the people over there and do the do some of the work that I was you know, so excited to do. But being over there was, was really interesting because particularly in Kenya and Uganda, they don't have a lot of government resource waste management. Okay. So they've got one large garbage tip, which is 
has everything in it. It's got things from like plastic, it's got building waste, but even things like hospitals and stuff like that that you don't think about, it's it's even the waste from amputations and that sort of stuff that all goes oh, to the same place gosh. and is just set on fire to burn 24-7. But rains, the fire goes out, they come back the next day, they set it on fire again. Wow. So the school that we were working on and, and working in in a place called uh, Kitioko, Nairobi, it bordered this rubbish tip. So during the day in the classrooms, you'd have this burning plastic smell fill fill the rooms because there wasn't any glazing on the windows. There was just metal bars. And as it would fill fill the room, just smelling the results of, of our waste streams. But one thing that I did notice, even though there wasn't government-organized recycling schemes, one thing I noticed is that the people in Kenya and Uganda were so resourceful in the way that they used different waste streams that they could get their hands on. They would take things like plastic bottles and turn them into toys for children. They would take things like cartons and turn them into small cars for children. You looked at the whole sort of process, even things like car tire treads, they turned them into sandals and shoes. And this was, there was so much of that all through Kenya. These people looking at different waste streams and going, how can we turn this into a product that we can use for the rest of our lives. So that was one thing that I was really sort of interested and fascinated with was how they're doing all these processes. And another thing that sort of popped up one of my last times in Kenya was there was a company making pavers from recycled plastic bottles. They were crushing them all up into small pieces and then melting them down. They didn't need any binders, but melting them into these paver products, which were then sort of going out, but they last forever. It's plastic but they were taking a waste stream that hadn't been captured by that local government and being able to do something new with it. And where were they using the plastic pavers? Because, like, on yeah. roads or...? In terms of Australian compliance, I don't think it would be compliant no, when it right. comes to compostability on and anything. Sort of yeah. But in, in Kenya, they were using predominantly in outdoor areas. Okay. So it was for, for car parks and that sort of thing where they wanted something that was durable but also from a recycled material. Yep. Obviously, the sort of detailing around Kenyan design and architecture is very, very different. No, absolutely. Particularly in some of these, these areas that are, I suppose, underprivileged or less fortunate. But it was beautiful to see that they were taking a waste stream that was readily available yeah. and converting it into something new rather than just throwing it and burning it on the rubbish tip. So I suppose being a part of that and seeing what was going on there, I had a couple of friends and some family members that were working for Natural Brick at the time. And they said, listen, when you come back, we, we want you to come on board. We want you to come on board and start working with our sales and marketing sort of division and, and work towards bringing the products that we're doing, taking them to market. So it was my last trip in Kenya. I was, I was working the best job I'd ever worked, which was working selling craft beer and wine. Yeah. I, had, I had the life that I really loved. From being, alcohol to bricks. I know, it's a big transition. <laughs> but I suppose one of the things that really made the difference was I, I love selling wine and I love selling craft beer and I love that community and the people that were a part of it. But I wanted to do something that really mattered. I wanted to do something that could really change the way that people see our waste in Australia, but also contribute to something that was, I suppose, more responsible for the earth and more responsible for, I suppose, our own like ecological responsibilities. So I came back from my last trip, spent Christmas over there, had a meeting with the, with the team out at Natural Brig and said, right, I'm ready to come on board. And that was a bit over four years ago now. Uh, and then since then, everything's sort of changed within within the brick world and within my own world as well. All right. So, William, if we just go back to, I'm sure everyone's curious, with the organisations, they're obviously international organisations where you were doing these projects. Did you want to give them a shout out? Because just in case anyone's interested. So the organisation we worked with in Kenya is called uh, Youth at Risk Community Centre. Youth at Risk, um, okay. And they're situated in a place called Kariobangi, okay. which is part of the, the slum sort of that's in Nairobi there. So that 
that organization we we're working with was, yeah, I suppose really fundamental. I've, I've been back to them. I've spent probably over six months with them over the years. I've been back there probably every 18 months since I finished school. Uh, the only thing that sort of changed that was that sort of COVID period. Mm. Um, and then we were working with a, a, just a variety of different individuals over in Uganda okay. and they were just working with separate organizations. So it was sort of just fitting in where we could and, and being a part of that. So yeah, that great organizations, but I don't think they have any sort of social presence online. Okay, no, um, no. I just think people would be curious. And William, what, just in terms of the, I guess, could you describe the outcome and what that's meant to those communities once they build a school? What does that do? I think that for when it comes to things like issues of sustainability and particularly issues of poverty, one of the biggest contributors to poverty is actually lack of education. When you have different classes of people that don't get access to quality education, typically what happens is they they leave school at a young age. They don't have any sort of uh, qualifications. They don't have any sort of skills that they've learned in trades and they, they fall into that laborers category. And when you're within that laborers category, it's very, very difficult to claw your way out of being living beneath the poverty line. So the, the school that we were working in, Kitioko, can, consists of about 420 students from, they call it, sort of pre-K, which is your preschool years, yes. goes all up to year eight, which is the last form of, of primary school there. And from a lot of those students, that the school fees for one year of school there was something like 200 Australian dollars. And half of the students at this school couldn't afford to even make their school fees. Mm-hmm. At, as part of those, the school fees in the school we were working with there, they'd give them a meal every day as well. Yeah. And for most of those children, that was the only meal they're going to have that day. Yeah. So the government changed a lot of the rules around kids being allowed to go to school on holidays. So Kenya has pretty tough rules around child labor as well, yeah. which I think is great, but it's also very difficult. Mm. For a lot of these students, if they're not allowed to go to school on holidays, that was they the only eat. place they get to eat. Yep. So you'd have all these students lining up, even in the holiday periods at the school, hoping that they might be able to, to eat that day and come into the school. So I suppose a couple of the documentaries and the podcasts and the different things that I've listened to around poverty and what changes poverty most, they speak about educating women. Mm. If you can educate women, particularly women that are living in poverty or or girls that are living in poverty, often what happens is they don't leave school early. They don't have children earlier. Mm. And for a lot of Kenyans, like a lot of Kenyans are having multiple children, even if they can't afford it. Mm. And that's really tough to see because for, for a lot of Kenyans, the only thing that they do have or people in these communities is their children. That's right. It's almost like the only thing that they they own. But if you if you take a girl through primary school and through secondary school and you find a bridgeway into university or some sort of degree, that means for a lot of these girls, they're able to be independent. And if they're able to be un- independent, they don't start having children until they're in their, their late 20s or early 30s. Mm. And it really changes the course of their life. It also changes the course of the children that they have thereafter. Mm. So one of my sort of passions and something I was really interested in was seeing how we could see children transition from primary school through high school into university and and see how their life changes beyond that. This year is actually the first year that I've seen kids that I taught or, or was working with back when they were six or seven years old have now finished you know, their secondary schooling and are now entering into to university. And I think it's really changing their community's life, their family's mm. life, but also as the individual seeing, seeing young girls grow up into women to prosper and to become independent of, mm. of a system that is so, so tough, particularly on children living in you know, less privileged areas. And it's often dictated to them. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. how it's going to be. That was sort of exciting to see that sort of process unfold. I yeah. think we're only a very small piece of the puzzle in terms of being a part of it. But 
I suppose continually going back to these communities and seeing some of these children, some of these families every year for the past decade, where you see them and you watch them grow and you watch them change. I think that was what was really beneficial as opposed to just going across one trip and then never seeing them again. Mm. And sort of the relationships that have been built there and the, the friendship that has been built there has been something that keeps drawing me back. Oh, I bet. And you can tell how passionate you are about it. Well, it's exciting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we went out this morning to your plant and we're able to see so many different projects that you guys are undertaking. And it's a very different process. So maybe if you could just take us back to what, the intention was, as you said, reducing wastage and how you go about your production of bricks. So four years ago when I came on board with Natural Brick, we were sort of looking around the mud brick side Mm. of things. So all we manufactured were mud bricks. They were a 190 mil block essentially with cores through it so that you could feed your reinforcement through, you could core fill it. And the the concept for that style of of product was for passive solar design. You'd have these single skin walls that allowed, you know, work to insulate the house, but also worked as thermal mass within the building. And whilst that type of design is really positive in terms of sustainability, what we found was that so much of the certification and compliance was really difficult to achieve, Mm. particularly within single skin construction. Yeah. So we started looking at, okay, well, what are people building with? What are people interested with within this concrete and this masonry world? And meeting after meeting with these architects all through New South Wales and Victoria, people were saying the same thing. We, we want bricks that are a bit different. We want bricks that we can put on a wall. And aesthetically, we know that they're going to have the durability. They're going to have the performance of brickwork. Mm-hmm. But we know that the uniqueness is going to cause people to question, well, what's different about these bricks yeah. and, and how do they work that way? So we applied a lot of the same science behind making these blocks to making the the Lutchens bricks, which sort of went into development about three and a half years ago. The first project was started with them with Alexander and Co. Jeremy Bull discovered us on Instagram when we had a few hundred followers um, and called us into a a meeting and said, I'm building my own studio and I want to use these bricks. I don't know how yet, but we we want to use some. So going through that process of sort of defining the form and looking at the materiality and, and trying to meet all of those requirements for, for compliance, for durability, for strength, for fire ratings. Like we make predominantly bricks out of recycled wood chip. So that 45... have been tested, by the way. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what's really astounded me was that when we originally were speaking, you told me we're a sort of, we're a, a manufacturer, although I use that term loosely, I think you're more craftsman, but, you know, we're also a constant research facility as into what is working and what isn't. And I mean, that's just today finding out that everything is tested and it still complies, you know, but that's a lot of investment. Yeah. So a lot of that research process and looking at the materiality, we knew how it would work from a a manufacturing side of things, but there's so much you have to learn on the job as well. When it goes to a building site and when bricklayers actually put their hands on these bricks, you learn so much about how your manufacturing process affects the end product or how it affects the trades that have to put those products in. So, yeah, we we started jumping through all the hoops of our compliance. As soon as we ended up with a product that we were happy with in terms of its shape, its performance and and the way that we could craft that product and, yeah, started going through the process of fire testing and all those sorts of things. Fire was definitely always the the scariest uh, to participate in or to to achieve. Working with engineers that go, your brick's made out of wood. Yeah, I think that's the reason why. So, yeah, going through all of the, the different sort of compliance certificates and engineering reports, we were able to produce a product that was comprised of 45 to 50% recycled wood chip and would meet non-combustibility standards, mm. would also meet its FRL standards. So the Lutchens brick itself as a 110 mil brick has a FRL of 180, 180, 180. And because the wood chip actually works 
adversely to, to the fire. It works to insulate the product, stopping that trans, transmission of heat through the wall. So pretty exciting stuff from that front. And then, yeah, all the other testing as well. That's, that's always been exciting and sort of changing and tweaking different bits and pieces of our process and our materiality to, to discover what works best. And one thing I, I really sort of fell in love with was, and if you could just explain it, was the country road sort of ceramic wastage they had and, and what you've done there because it looks absolutely perfect. I'm putting it up on my Instagram. Yeah, so we do a lot of uh, research around materiality with different companies. So mm. if a company or an organisation or even like an architecture firm contacts us and says, we want to do this custom piece, we want to try this, we want to try that, we always ask them, okay, well, if, if you're working on a project with, a say, a retail outlet, what wastage do they have that they don't know what to do with? If it was something like a clothing store, you say, well, how many coat hangers do they go through because they break? Is there something we can do with the coat hangers? Yeah, right. In conversations with Country Road, we started chatting with them around two years ago. And um, in chatting with the designer that was looking at running these different projects all around Australia, I think they've got over 600 Country Road stores. I said, well, what wastage do you guys have that we could maybe do something with, we could experiment mm. with? And after about six months, they got back and they said, listen, we've got a couple of pallets of these mugs and they're all defective. They're the wrong colours. They're missing labels. Some of them are broken. Is there something we can do with them? And these are coffee mugs. I mean, they they originally looked good. Yeah, that's <laughs> I've right. I've seen them broken. Yeah. So we, we took two pallets of mugs. We had over a 1,000 mugs in total. And we said, well, why don't we start experimenting and, and we'll crush some up and we'll put it into some sort of concrete composite and then we'll hone it back and we'll polish it to a terrazzo. So we sort of functioned with with two businesses at Natural Brick. We've got a, a custom department within Natural Brick, which contributes to all of those sort of facade treatments, cladding treatments and brick treatments. And then we have ReStudio as well, which focuses around furniture and sort of custom one-off pieces where we might not have the commercial scale to, to find enough waste to continue doing this product. So Was that, that like that table that we saw today? That's right, yeah. yeah. So we we started experimenting and we we did the first project over in Buragoon in, in Perth and yeah, shipped that across and flew across for a 15-minute installation uh, to put it in. But they were stoked with the, with the end product because yep. they could see that they were contributing to ways to absorb their own waste through the way that they were designing. So every time we chat with architects or designers and they want to do something new or unique, the first question we ask is, well, what waste do you see that your organisation or the companies you're working with is producing and how can we experiment with that to tell a story of, it's important that we think about the end of life of products, yes. but also that we think about the waste associated with how we design. And I love that, I mean, I've been able to see the end product of those coffee mugs and where they've ended up and it looks fabulous. And that's now been reinstalled into the Country Road stores. Yeah, so the mm. ones that you saw today, they'll be done and installed in the Camberwell Country Road store, which is opening mm. up next month. Wow. So, yeah, super exciting stuff. But it's always really nice to, to work with architects and designers and, and see sort of their vision for a product and we can sort of combine that to, to make that happen. But one thing we've also found is that there's such a missed opportunity within the manufacturing world, particularly for building supplies. With the students that are in university, like we do a fair bit of work with UTS and UCID and we've had students out at our, our factory and our plant on multiple occasions just to make products together. And when they can get their hands on the products mm. that they're designing on CAD or they're sketching, it really changes the way that they think about design. So we recently completed a project with UCID uh, with their master's architectural students where they built this whole uh, pavilion out of different waste streams and different resources. And we had them out of the factory, 20 students making concrete cladding and roof tiles out of a waste stream that they got to test and they got to look at the process around yeah which was which was super exciting yeah it's fabulous is there a waste product that you would like to work with that you haven't yet oh that's a good question 
I'm really interested in recycled rubber from car tires. Okay. I think that something like close to a billion car tires per year mm. uh, go to landfill. I suppose it's very difficult in terms of the the compliance, particularly for combustibility or, or what comes out of the brick if it is being fired. Yeah. But we have experimented with it on a couple of occasions, working with some furniture pieces where they don't need that same sort of compliance. No, yeah. But it's, yeah, what, whatever we can see that's going to waste so quickly and there's so much of it, that's what I'm really interested in. How can we work to absorb some of those waste streams into to products that last, you know, stand the test of time? Mm. All right. Well, it's been fascinating and I've, I will say that all of your bricks touched by many human hands and it, it's really lovely to see the process coming back and also the different shapes. You've got curved bricks, you've got the linear bricks and all in these different colours with obviously these different waste products as a byproduct but are making the product. Yeah, absolutely. It's mm. a, a lot of hands go into making every single brick at they our factory. They do. I was, <laughs> it's no joke, everyone. William, one of my new favourite bricks is actually what everyone's tried to achieve with modular bricks, but you have created a mould for curved bricks. How do these custom bricks work? What's the process? Yeah, so the the brick that you saw out of the factory today, we refer to that at the factory as the S brick because (laughs) it curves both ways and it works as a sort of a junction brick where two different curved walls meet each other. That way you don't have to have a, a straight joint, like an expansion or a control joint through there. But one thing that's sort of been really exciting over the past couple of years has been working with architects that really love bricks and really want to do bricks in particular buildings but they've got these architectural details that don't suit a standard size brick and they don't suit our standard size brick either which is Mm -hmm. quite long but working with architects and working with our process what we've discovered and what we found is it's it's quite simple for us to work with architects to mold bricks to the shape and size that they need to meet that architectural detail on a project so whether it was a custom curve or a custom corner that's something that we've been working very closely with some, some great architects to achieve some really, really cool details on projects. Mm. I think that the, the project that comes to mind most recently is a project with Adam Kane that's currently in construction down in, in Melbourne. And the way that they wanted to facilitate the bricks in this project, it was designed with bricks on the floors, bricks on the walls and bricks on the roof. Yeah, we all can't wait to see this. But yeah. where, the, where the wall and the, the roof meet, you've got this strange junction where it doesn't suit a standard brick. So how can we fill that space and sort of keep that aesthetic running from the floors to the walls to the roof. So casting a custom brick in, in that application was was quite exciting working with our process, but also working very closely with the builder, the bricklayer, and the, the architectural team down there at Adam Kane to really bring this project together and sort of knit these brick this brickwork together with these different applications. And how long did that process take? Well, we try to move pretty quickly on these yeah. sorts of things. So we didn't actually know what that brick was going to look like until the walls were built. And as with most construction jobs, they want to build very, very quickly. They want to move through fast. So after the walls went up, we received a call from the builder saying, cool, this is the exact angle. This is the exact size that we need. Uh, We then spoke with our, we've got a metal fabricator that we work with very closely and a a CNC fabricator that we work with closely as well. said, cool, we need this and we need it in the next couple of days so that we can cast these bricks, get them cured and get them to site to to continue their project. So, um, yeah, I think the whole process... From the design side, once we f- first got those drawings to when we started trialing casting with the moulds, was probably like a two-week period. And then after we cast, we had that curing period, which we, we have a natural curing period of about eight weeks. I was weeks. just going to ask you about that. Could you just describe that because I was gobsmacked, but just describe how you sort of cure things and what you do to reduce, I guess, the impact. 
Yeah, so I think the the biggest issue with brick manufacturing is typically the embodied carbon in all the products that we produce. So whether you're manufacturing products out of concrete, Mm -hmm. like the, the biggest contributor to carbon emissions globally is the concrete industry, it's cement. So we use cement in our bricks, but then on the other side with with clay bricks, one of the hardest things for a lot of clay brick manufacturers is the carbon cost associated with kiln firing their bricks. So what we wanted to do sort of as a company was find ways where we could cure our bricks and develop the materiality of our bricks and lower the carbon at the same time. So after we cast all our bricks, we enter what we call the natural curing period. Mm -hmm. So for the first four weeks, we create like a greenhouse effect around the bricks as they're curing that keeps all the moisture in the bricks and allows all that that cement to crystallize mm-hmm. and then for the last four weeks we allow that to all dry off so it's undercover but we let the air and the sun dry all the moisture out of the bricks so that eight week process is what we need in order to get a brick ready to go to site so that's why a little um, bit longer but it does take yeah. longer yeah but i think in terms of what we're trying to achieve with our embodied carbon that this is the only way we're going to get close if we start looking at different ways of developing the materiality but also the process and methodology behind the products that we create and william it's just been a huge day of learning for me and i've been so pleasantly surprised and inspired with everything that you're doing and i think thank you for coming here today to talk us through the process and also for our listeners if you have some waste products we'll make sure that you've got all those details in the show notes but before we go we are going to talk about we've got some rapid fire questions for you all answers are acceptable favorite color palette my new favorite color palette is actually pastels pastel pink bricks and that sort of thing so it's coming back Polished or shot blast concrete blocks? I'm a big fan of changing up the texture across the project, so I like a bit of a mix. Okay. With this one, textured or smooth, I think I know the answer. Yeah, mix as well. (laughs) Dark or light concrete blocks? Light. CAD model or physical model? Physical model. There's nothing quite like seeing a bunch of people standing around a physical model on a table. You've provided us with heaps of fun facts, but any fun facts about your concrete bricks? I think our concrete brick is currently the longest brick in the Australian market. So that's pretty interesting. Wow. The challenge is out there for anyone to contend. Form or function? Form. Solid blocks or breeze blocks? I love breeze blocks. Early riser or night owl? When you work in our industry, the phone starts calling at six and doesn't finish till seven. It's all hours. Antique or brand new? Antique. Urban or rural landscape? Rural. William, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing everything about this amazing initiative and also Natural Brick. Thanks so much for having us, Liz. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know. 